You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today's message is part of a series called Rooted in Christ by Pastor Daniel White. Now let's prepare our hearts as Pastor White brings forth God's truth from his word today. Take your Bible. Those of you who were here during the revival, you know that Pastor Kaufman was preaching from 1 Corinthians throughout the whole revival, and then on Wednesday night, he went all the way from chapter 3 into chapter 13. And I was saying, don't do that, because this passage of Scripture is exactly what God had laid on my heart throughout the week to preach on today. But he did a phenomenal job preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but he took it in a direction, and I'm going to take a different direction here. There's just so much. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I mean, we could go over the same scripture over and over again and never come to the depths of it. And so it's true here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you know much about your Bible, you know that this has been called the love chapter of the Bible. It says, if you notice with me here, in verse 13, the last verse of this chapter, it says, And now abideth faith. Now remember, without faith, it is impossible to what? You can't please God. Now abideth faith. Number two, if you were here for the Sunday school class that Phil taught, he taught on hope. The Bible said when we lose our hope, we are of all men most miserable. Now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three. But the greatest of these, greater than faith, greater than hope, is what? Charity. But the greatest of these is charity. I've entitled the message this morning, Perverted Love. Perverted Love. Oh, how the enemy has attacked these three things. Faith, hope, but most of all, charity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the time we have together today. I have so much here, and to me it looks like an impossibility to share everything that's on my heart with your people. So Lord, would you, would you help me to just forego things that don't need to be said, and Father, emphasize the things that do, and would you just take over, take control of this preacher, of this service? And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so as I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am what? A nothing. A big zero. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And then he defines what true biblical love really is. Like many of Paul's epistles, or should I say, like most of Paul's epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians was written as letters of correction to a very carnal church. Matter of fact, we know, we just learned last week, I'm sure many of you knew that before last week, that the church at Corinth was the most carnal church in all the scriptures. Listen, they were a mess spiritually. So repeatedly, as Paul writes these two letters... To the Corinthian believers, he is reproving them. He is rebuking them. He is exhorting them concerning how much, how much damage they had individually caused to the cause of Christ as well as collectively as a church. In one passage, he said, don't do anything that the ministry be not blamed. And they were bringing tremendous blame on the ministry because of their carnality. The reason that this church was so carnal 
is because their thinking was all wrong. They were thinking like who? The Corinthians. They were thinking like the Corinthians. And because they were thinking like the Corinthians, they were living like the Corinthians. And so they were bringing tremendous shame and blame to the cause of Christ. Remember what wise old Solomon said? As a man thinketh, finish it with me, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You are what you think. And so the battle really is a battle for our thought life. The Corinthian believers had completely assimilated themselves into the Corinthian lifestyle. They were absorbed into the Corinthian lifestyle. They had integrated themselves into the Corinthian way of living. They had embraced Corinthian ideas, Corinthian philosophy, and Corinthian culture. They not only were in the world, they were of the world. Jesus prayed, I pray not that thou wouldest take them out of the world, but that thou wouldest keep them from the wicked one and the evil that is in the world. We are to be in this world, but we are not to be of this world. And the only way that we are going to be in the world and not of the world is if we adjust our thinking to think biblically and not think as the world thinks. The Corinthian believers are what I would call today or label today contemporary Christians. They were contemporary Christians. They were Corinthian Christians. The word contemporary, and we use that a lot today, there's a lot of Christians that identify themselves and are not ashamed to say, I'm a contemporary Christian and I go to a contemporary church. Matter of fact, listen here, the contemporary church in America is on the increase and the fundamental church in America is on the decrease, substantially. So most Christians today in America would identify themselves as contemporary Christians. I would call them Corinthian Christians. What does it mean to be contemporary? You know, when you don't know what a word means, it's a good idea to get out a good old Webster's Dictionary. Not the new Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, but a good old-fashioned Webster's Original Dictionary. And Webster says this. He says a contemporary simply means belonging to the present. Let me ask you a question. Are we as believers to belong to this present evil world? He says it means to be modern. It means to be up-to-date. It means to be fashionable. We now have today music that is loved by the Church of Jesus Christ, and they call it CCM music. What does that stand for? Contemporary Christian music. Music that belongs to this present age. Music that is modern. Music that is up to date. Music that is fashionable. Has God called us ever to be fashionable to this world? Sorry, no. That's why Paul said to the contemporary Corinthian Christians, he said, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not these unclean things. And the Lord will receive you. He exhorted them concerning their worldly mindedness when he said, You need to cast down those imaginations, those Corinthian imaginations. You need to cast down those imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. They were not taking their thoughts captive, they were thinking just like the world around them was thinking. And that is why they were such a mess, and that is why they were so carnal. Today, and I may be wrong as I say this, 
but I don't think that I am or I wouldn't say it. I believe that our humanistic educational system that most of our young people are being brought up in today, our entertainment, our music. I'll tell you this. I've been sh- there have been several times when I've had to get into your cars and move them. You know that usually when we have a place to meet, we meet at the, the White House. By the way, I'm the president of that White House. We meet at the White House, and you know, I often, because we have so many vehicles parked there, I often have to get in and move a vehicle. You'd be amazed how many times when I get in your cars, CCM music is playing. Humanistic education, our entertainment, our music, social media, the internet. Christians today are more Corinthianized than they've ever been in the history of the church. And as Pastor Kaufman was preaching, and he was preaching on some of these themes last week, I'm sitting there and I'm listening, I'm absorbing, I'm taking all this in and knowing what I know of the, the Bible and our present culture and the state of the church and our church and, 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 and what I know about 1 Corinthians. I'm like, you know, so much of my ministry today is simply confronting Cor- Corinthian thinking. Contemporary... Corinthian Christianity. It's on the increase. Fundamentalism or fundamental Christianity is on the decrease. Paul exhorted his son in the faith, Timothy, who he was training to be a faithful pastor. He said this to Timothy, hold fast. Boy, have we ever had a day and age where we need to hold fast to the fundamentals of the faith. He said, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love. I want to tell you something. It is a loving thing to hold fast to the sound teachings of the Bible. It is an unloving thing to let those sound fundamental teachings drift by the wayside and become as the modern, up-to-date, fashionable church. John exhorted the few faithful believers that were left in the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. These were faithful believers in a contemporary church. And this is what he said. He said, you faithful members. He said, hold fast till Jesus comes. Hold fast till Jesus comes. If you know anything about that church at Thyatira a woman had actually taken over the leadership of the church. John says she is a Jezebel. Hold fast. Satan has taken this wonderful word called fundamental or fundamentalism and he's twisted it to mean something that it is not. If you consider yourself a fundamentalist today, the world looks at you and say, oh, you're one of those terrorists. I've actually received letters from members of our church who have left our church and have written in the letter, I am not a fundamentalist. And I'm like, do you really understand and know what a fundamentalist is? See, a fundamentalist is a Christian soldier. Remember, the church is a boot camp. Training soldiers for Jesus Christ to put on the armor of God and stand fast in this evil day. So a fundamental Christian 
is a Christian soldier who is so, so in love with Jesus Christ and the word of God that they are willing to stand for the fundamentals of the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, never will be changed. And they're willing to contend, even if it requires their life. They are willing to contend for those fundamentals of the faith and stand up for what is right. They are believers who, I'll use the word tenaciously, tenaciously hold to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith without compromise. And sometimes we are labeled as unloving because we do that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The most unloving people, Christians, are those who forego the fundamentals of the faith and say, you know what, we just need to get up to date. We just need to get into the modern group. Historic fundamentalism was an idea that was spawned back in the late 1800s. You may remember I've preached on fundamentalism before in the history of fundamentalism. But there were several Protestant churches and Baptist churches, and I I make a difference between Protestant churches and Baptist churches because Baptists are not Protestant. I remember when uh, I was uh, in grade school, and we were going to uh, a basketball camp, and we had to be gone. It was a two-week camp. We had to be gone over a Sunday. And they, they asked us to write down if we were either Protestant or Catholic. And my dad wrote, neither, Baptist. You know why Baptists are not Protestant? We were never a part of the Catholic Church. We never were. We never protested. But along with many Protestant churches and Baptist churches, fundamentalism was born in the late 1800s. These evangelical churches were facing the rise of liberalism that was creeping into their church. They were dealing with liberal theology. They were dealing with Darwinism. They were dealing with higher criticism. Boy, we're still dealing with people who are hypercritical about this book. You know what I believe about this book? I believe that it is the inspired, infallible, and errant, preserved word of God for us today. And every word of God is true. I want to tell you, you want, you, want to get, you want to get the dandruff? I don't have dandruff, by the way. You know why I don't have dandruff? Because I was raised on burl cream. How many, how many of you know what burl cream is? Yeah, see, that's why the rest of you aren't laughing. I was raised on burl cream. Now I use a mineral oil. Actually, I use baby oil, but baby oil is just mineral oil. But, uh, I put that in, and I don't have dandruff. But you want to get my dandruff up? I'm dead serious. You want to get my dandruff up? You come to this preacher and you tell me, well, you know what? That really isn't what that word means. It means something else. Or tell me, you know what? That really is a mistranslation. A better word would be. Or if you really want to get my dandruff going, say something like this. That's not what Strong's Concordance says. Like he has more authority than the word of God itself. In the late 1800s, all this liberal theology and higher criticism and modernism and even the embracing of Darwinism because they didn't know how to confront. You know how to confront it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These churches got together and they said, we're going to take a stand. We're standing up against this contemporary movement. We're going to stay faithful to the word of God. And there were five basic doctrines that were under attack. The inerrancy and preservation of Scripture. The deity of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus is God. The virgin birth. The substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. Which meant salvation was by grace through faith. Apart from the works of the law. The physical resurrection. And bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It said These are fundamentals of the faith that never will be changed. 
We're standing up for that. We're standing up for the truth of the gospel. Listen, there is nothing more loving than standing up and giving your life in defense of the word of God. Noah Webster said that fundamentalism is orthodoxy. Orthos means correct. Doxa means opinion. To be fundamental means that you have a correct opinion. And then this is what he wrote. Religious belief based on the literal interpretation of the Bible. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? It says what it says and it means what it says? If you believe that, you're a fundamentalist. Fundamental doctrines that have, since the beginning, been under attack are those, I'm telling you right here, that this preacher would give his life for. You come put a gun to my head right now and tell me to deny any one of these, you better pull the trigger. I am a fundamentalist without apology. We have these doctrines, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. I do not believe there's an error in the Scriptures. The Trinity, the deity of... By the way, if there is an error, if there's one error in this book, we better shut this book and we better close down our church. Because we'd have to say the Word of God has error. No, I want to tell you... You don't believe that. You have an error, not the Word of God. We have the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, the existence of angels and demons. We've been studying now on Wednesday night. The existence of Satan, a literal heaven, a literal hell, the depravity of man, salvation by grace through faith apart from the works of the law, the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's table. Separation from worldliness, separation from religious apostasy, the autonomy of the local church, the separation of church and state, which, by the way, the separation of church and state is not that the church should not have influence in the state, but the state needs to keep themselves out of the church. Soul liberty, the priesthood of the believer, the sovereignty of God, the premillennial rapture of the church, the second advent of Jesus Christ, and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. These, these are... The fundamentals of the faith. Listen, we don't need to be modern. We don't need to be up to date. These old doctrines of the faith, they may not be fashionable with this world, but I'll tell you what, they're always in fashion with God. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That word contend means fight for. Is it a loving thing to fight for? For there are certain men crept in unawares. Seem to be the nicest men you've ever met. They creep in unawares. Who before ordained who before were ordained to this condemnation. They are ungodly men. They don't appear to be ungodly, but they are ungodly men because they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. What is lasciviousness? It's immoral behavior. It's Corinthian thinking. It's saying, oh, we're saved by grace. We can live however we want to live. Those old commandments, mm. We don't need to live by those. Paul strongly condemned the worldly thinking of the Corinthians. You know, I'm kind of wondering if there was a possibility of doing this to take your thought life and extrapolate your thought life from your brain. And you know, up here we have two projectors. On one projector, we will transpose all of your godly, spiritual, biblical thinking. And over here on this side, 
We would, we would put up for the whole world to see. We would put up all of your carnal, worldly, unbiblical thinking. As a man thinketh in his heart. What? Based upon what we would see, we could determine how you live your life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I would dare say that many of us would probably be quite ashamed if somehow we could project our thought life up here on the wall for all of us to see. I think we may be surprised at the carnal Corinthian thinking that so many of us have. Paul said, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to naught the understanding of the prudent. Remember, he's writing this to the Corinthians. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, it knew not God. I, brethren, I came unto you not with excellency of speech, declaring unto you the testimony of God in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For the wisdom of this world is foolish. Corinthian thinking is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we had our conversation in the world. Listen, we are not to live our lives thinking like the Corinthians. What does fleshly wisdom, Corinthian thinking, what does it produce? Remember, as a man thinketh in his heart, what? What does it produce? Paul had to say this, I, brethren, talking to the Corinthians, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto what? Carnal. He said, for ye are yet carnal. They were thinking like the world thinks. The carnality within the Corinthian church was quite striking. And I'm not going to list all my time. I'm always fighting that old clock. But here are just some of the things that, you know, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he thing. These are just some of the things that had emerged within the Corinthian church because of their carnal thinking. There was envy, strife, and division. There was pride, selfishness, and self-centeredness. There was sexual immorality. There was divorce and remarriage. They had turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. They had turned their liberty in Christ into a license to sin. There was drunkenness. There was the abuse of spiritual gifts. There was the embracing of false doctrine. They were not tithing and giving to the Lord's work. They honored the rich and they despised the poor. Women had taken over leadership in the church. Paul's pastoral authority and apostleship was constantly under question. His message, for the most part, was rejected. And many said, you're not even an apostle. These are just a few of the things. The reason that the Corinthian church was in such a mess spiritually is because of their Corinthian thinking. Listen, we're not to think like this world. Amen? We are not to think like this world. It and, and what happened is it all boiled down, their wrong thinking all boiled down to a perversion of biblical love. You may remember there was even a man in the church that was living with his mother in incest 
and the church wasn't even saying anything about it. I want to tell you something, that is twisted, perverted love. Jesus taught that the greatest of all the commandments was number one, to love God with all your heart. Number two was to love your neighbor yourself. Upon these two, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. Now abideth faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is what? We now live in a world where very few, even within the church, understand biblical love. Our concept of love has become so perverted, so twisted. Very few could define it. From the pulpit to the pews, the concept of love has been perverted. If I were to ask you, what is love? Or if I was to ask you, would you please define love for me, what would you say? I wonder if you would say, you know what, Pastor? I have a hard time defining it, but that person over there, they are such a loving person. On what basis are you making that judgment that they're such a loving person? Are you making that judgment based upon Corinthian thinking or upon biblical thinking? I have known people who appear to be very loving. But I'm here to tell you, I have found out that they're really wolves in sheep's clothing. I know some of you don't like to hear that. But it is absolutely the truth. I just had a pastor this past week tell me about two of his deacons who he really believes are wolves in sheep's clothing, destroying the work of Christ. He knows them very personally because he has to work with them. He has to deal with them in all the deacons' meetings. He said, you know, he said, they appear to be so kind and loving to the congregation. He said, my congregation has no idea what these men are really like. You know, you ask most people, what, what do you really want out of life? And if, if you boil it all down, most people would say, I just want to be loved. But what is it? What is love? I've had couples in my counseling office as I'm preparing them for marriage, and I say, do you guys love one another? I've never had a couple say, nope, we don't love each other. <laughs> they get the goo-goo eyes, you know, and they look at each other, and they smile. and They say, well, of course we love each other. And then I'll ask them a question. Well, what is love? I tell you something, young people? Love is not some warm, fuzzy feeling. When I grew up, I always went hunting with my father. I don't know how many of you remember this. This will date you back if you're a hunter. Uh, I know Brother Buston remember these. He probably sold them. They were called hot seats. The hot seat, it had hot seat written on it. It was bright red, and it was filled with foam, and you would sit on that thing and your butt would start getting warm. 
Seriously. I'll tell you, love is a whole lot more than some warm, fuzzy feeling. Most people, if you were asked them today, well, define love for me. They would say some things like this, and I I really had to think through some of these things. They would say, well, it's just having tolerance towards another person's behavior, whether you agree with it or not. You know, we have to be a tolerant society. Or they would say something like this. It's, it's an acceptance of a person, whatever he or she is, is doing, or whatever he or she believes, you just, you, you accept them. You're tolerant. You're accepting. Others would say it, it's being non-judgmental. That's what true love is, is being non-judgmental. Another would say, well, it's, it's just letting everybody do what they think is right in their own eyes. I think the book of Judges says something about that. It's not having a condemning spirit. It's a connection between two people that makes you feel emotionally good. It's an emotion of affection for another person. It's a feeling of deep affection. It's a feeling that, you know, just makes you want to jump for joy. Love is just, it just makes everything brighter and happier and more wonderful. Well, love, and here's how many in the world define it, love is just an attraction based on sexual desire. It's a strong affection felt by people who have a romantic attachment to each other. It's intimacy. It's passion that underlines physical desire. And we could go on and on with these definitions that the world gives to love. Can I tell you something? They're all wrong. I was reading one man... And he said this, love is temporary insanity, which is curable by marriage. (laughs) I don't believe that. But did you notice something as I was reading through those different definitions? That most of them had to do with self and the fulfillment of selfish desires? Because we, because we have defined love, instead of letting the one who created love define it, we've perverted it. I am so sick and tired of hearing Well, you know, if they just love each other, they should have the right to marry. Throw up. Because they did not like to retain God and God's definition of love, God gave them over to a reprobate, a perverted mind. For even the men did exchange the natural use of the woman into that which was against nature. And men burned in their lust one towards another. This homosexual movement that we have today, and and God help us as a nation that now legalized homosexual marriage, that's not love. That is perversion. That's what God calls reprobation. For even the women did exchange the natural use into that which is against nature. That is not love. 
It's perversion. Thank you. But God is love. God is love and his love is demonstrated in everything that he does. It's not his major attribute. His major attribute is holiness. But God is loving in everything that he does. Even when God brings judgment, it's always loving. The Bible doesn't say that God loves. It says God is love. Now, yes, God does love, but God is love. Everything that God does flows from his love. What a perversion of love that we have today. From the acceptance of sodomy and homosexuality to the LGBT agenda, to people even being confused as to what their sexuality is. Perverted love. This is what the Bible says. They have changed the truth of God into a lie. Can I tell you something? I'm not even sure that many Christians even know what the truth of God is about love anymore. Jesus is love. You know why Jesus is love? Because Jesus is God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and they picked up stones to stone him. He said, why are you going to stone me? Because of some good work that I have done? They said, no, we are going to stone you because you, being a man, have made yourself out to be God. He was God. Everything that Jesus did, he did out of the attribute of love. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been with you so long, time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father also. Let me ask you some questions. When Jesus performed miracles, did he demonstrate love in the performance of all those miracles? I think there's some 31 or 32 recorded for us in Scripture. Amazing miracles that he did, even, even raising the dead. When Jesus preached the gospel, was he demonstrating love to a lost and dying world, yes or no? When Jesus took up children into his arms, even though he was criticized by the disciples for doing so, when he took the children up into his arms and he, he blessed them and spent time with them, was he demonstrating love? When Jesus cleansed the temple, Two times, at the beginning and also at the end of his ministry. When he cleansed the temple, made a whip, turned over the tables of the money changers, drove them out of the temple with a whip in his hand. Was that love? When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. Oh, by the way, if Jesus would do that in his church today, he'd probably be slapped with a lawsuit. I'm not kidding. When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, when he called them whited sepulchers, he said, you are nothing but full of dead man's bones. You are vipers. When he said, you are the children of hell. Did he lose his attribute of love? Or was he just as loving as he had always been? When Jesus went to the cross. For my sin and for yours. Was that a demonstration also of his love? Yes. 
You see what I'm saying? We have such a twisted view of love that now we think we can't even stand up or say anything about what is wicked and what is wrong. Or we're going to be stamped with the label of being unloving, of being one of those fundamentalists. Can I ask you a few more questions? You don't have a roast on, do you? How many have learned not to put a roast on and being part of Fellowship Baptist? Okay. <laughs> Someone has a roast on, you're a visitor here at Fellowship Baptist Church. Was Paul? By the way, I'm not going to be able to finish this message today. Or I might get roasted. But was Paul motivated by love when he wrote this epistle? How many say yes? Hmm. So you're trying to tell me he was loving when he called them carnal babies? How would you like your preacher to get up here and say, You're all nothing but just a bunch of carnal babies. I wouldn't say that because we've got a couple that aren't. <laughs> was, was Paul unloving when he said, Either you get your act together or the next time I come, I'm coming with a rod. See, some uh, children don't believe their parents are too, too loving when their parents discipline them. I'm here to tell you, kids, if your parents don't discipline you, they don't love you. Was it unloving for Paul to call them foolish and ignorant? Now stop and think about that. He called them ignorant brethren. I guess the cistern got out of that one. No, stop. I mean, seriously, how would you feel if I came up to you and called you a carnal baby, foolish and ignorant? How many of you would take up an offense against your preacher? Come on, be honest. Do you think the preacher should go around daring people? How many think the preacher should go around and dare people? Eli goes, do it, pastor, do it. Eli goes, I dare you, do it. That's what Paul said. He said, I dare any of you. He said, I dare any of you who have a matter against another go to law before the unjust. I dare you to do that. Do you think the Corinthians knew exactly who he was talking about in the church? Was that loving? Wasn't it unloving? For Paul to point out a man who is living in fornication and say, you deliver that man unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh. How many would say, that sounds a little unloving? Come on. You see, that's how affected we have been by the world's definition of love. I'm going to be honest with you. That even sounds unloving to me. So I'm saying I have been affected by the world's view of love. Don't you think it was unloving for Paul to constantly be telling them how to live their lives? 
pointing out error? Wasn't it just Paul being judgmental and critical? I mean, he even admitted that his preaching to them was rude and offensive. I'm here to, I believe this. I believe that everything Paul wrote was inspired by God and had the love of Christ all over it. I'm going I'm to I'm tell you something. We are a bunch of politically correct babies. We don't want anyone to tell us how to live and we don't want anyone to rub us the wrong way. And I'm just here to tell you, sometimes love has to call it like it is. And sometimes love has to be tough. Wow. Well, that's not just the introduction, but only about halfway through. We have got to. I'm going to come back to this tonight before we have our testimony. So please come back tonight. We have got to have a biblical view of what true love is. Otherwise, if we don't, we're going to be just as much a mess as the individuals in the church of Corinth was. And you know what? I don't want to go there. Do you? What an awkward place to end. But if I keep you any longer, your seat will not endure the rest of this message. At least that's what Pastor Bruce tells me. (laughs) By the way, he's watching right now, so. We're stopping because of you, Pastor. Let's pray. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram where you can see what's happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.